Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So the first reading is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazeroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord God had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Zion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edrai he had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound his law, saying, The Lord our God says to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance to the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the descendants after him. And the second readings from uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, and can be found on page 786 in the Bibles from the back. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to the heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
All right. Well, good morning again, and uh, please um, keep your Bible open in front of you. Uh, if you are tempted to close your Bible, open it up again. Um, we are going to do a fair bit of like Bible flipping today. Okay, so um, get ready to flip on your phone or your device or with one of those, you know, the old school varieties. Um, Again, Simon is my name, and uh, today we start a a new series in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, a series, there's a slide coming up, there you go, Uh, Deuteronomy, um, Now Choose Life is the subtitle. Um, I don't know, maybe you're new to church, maybe you haven't been a Bible reader for a long time, maybe uh, you're an avid Bible reader, Uh, maybe you have a lot of knowledge about Deuteronomy, maybe you have zero knowledge of Deuteronomy. Um, I want you to turn to the person next to you really briefly, Uh, And just, if you have no idea what Deuteronomy is, say, what is it? We heard a little bit of it just then. Or maybe just share, like, your impressions of the book, um, good, bad, or otherwise, with the person next to you, okay? Um, You may have nothing to say. Maybe we'll change that by the end of the day. But have a quick chat. Deuteronomy, what do you know about it? What do you know about it? Have a quick chat to the person next to you for a couple of seconds. All right, we might come back together. The truth be told, that was just what they call a sneaky pastor move because I totally forgot to cut up the bread for the Lord's Supper that we're about to do after I preach. So while you were chatting, I just raced out there, did that. I don't really care what you think about Deuteronomy. No, no, I, I actually do. Um, with those thoughts in mind, oh, one really quick thing to say. Um, I mentioned, I forgot to mention it before. Um, Eloise Chuddy, who is about to sheepishly put her hand in the air, There you go. Um, I didn't mention this a little while ago. Um, Many of us know this, but Eloise, dear sister in Christ, been around for a while. She's engaged to be married. Um, uh, Many of us will have seen Ben around from time to time. Uh, Eloise engaged to Ben. How long ago did this happen? Like four years? No. About a month, uh, about a month. That's how slow I am at reporting that to us. But uh, congratulations, and um, we look forward to all that comes from that. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We thank you, Father, for our time together in your word this morning. And Father, for the gift of your word uh, that is so good. Father, we pray now as we think about your word. Father, please transform us by it, uh, through your grace, by your spirit. Take my words, make them yours. Uh, Teach us, Father, this morning. Uh, Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Deuteronomy is a spectacular book. Uh, It is Moses on the edge of the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, preaching his heart out to Israel, God's people begging them to remember the Lord and to remember the law that God had given them 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai or Horeb, depending on the translation of the Bible you have. Um, And the opening paragraph that uh, that, uh, Liz read out um, is almost, of Deuteronomy, is almost a little bit of a joke, right? It takes 11 days, right, for the Israelites, uh, would have taken 11 days for the Israelites to get from Sinai to the edge and to the promised land. It would have taken them 11 days if you took a certain road. But the next line in the opening part of Deuteronomy says it took them 40 years. What should have taken 11 days took 40 years. And you go, what? 
But everyone knew that the 40 years had been because of Israel's disobedience to God. So God sent them around and around and around and around as a wandering people for that period. But now they are at a point where God is going to take them into the promised land. And here is Moses. He can see the land. And he preaches his heart out. He sort of says, please follow God. Please follow the wonderful law that God gave you. He rescued you out of Egypt. And now we're going into the land that he promised to give us. Obey him, choose life, cling to God, trust in his promises. And this is how the book of Deuteronomy gets its name. Deuteronomy is from two words, deuteronomos, second law. This is because the law given to Israel is actually recorded in our Bibles in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, is Moses reiterating the law, repeating the law, but now on the edge of the promised land, reiterating it for the new generation of Israel. The old ones died and passed away. The new generation stands poised to take the promised land. Now, you may be puzzled, right? Why have we called the series Now Choose Life, right? When, I don't know when you were chatting to the person next to you. For some people, right, they associate the book of Deuteronomy and the whole Old Testament law, not so much with life, but with death and boredom, anything but life. Some associate the law of God with moralism and legalism and ethnocentricity and violence. This is a problem we're going to have to face right over the next nine weeks as we work our way through Deuteronomy. But I want to stress, right, there is no avoiding the importance of Deuteronomy in the sweep of the Bible and in God's plan for salvation. I mean, within the Old Testament and for Jewish people still today, right, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, if, for example, like for people who come from America, the US, welcome to church, it's good to have you here with us this morning, the book of Deuteronomy for the Jewish people is a bit like for a US person, the US Constitution and the speeches of Abraham Lincoln all kind of rolled in together. It's that significant. That's how important the ancient Israelites viewed the book of Deuteronomy. It's huge. But even in the New Testament, right, Deuteronomy is incredibly important. It's one of the four most quoted books of the Old Testament in our New Testament. So the four are Genesis, Isaiah, Psalms, and Deuteronomy, hugely important for the New Testament. Jesus loved Deuteronomy. We know this because he quoted it heaps. In fact, right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he quotes Deuteronomy, right? So Jesus has these 40 days in the wilderness where he's fasting and he goes through all these temptations before he launches his ministry in the world to seek and save the lost. And so he's out wandering the desert for 40 days, which is, has an echo, right, in 40 years of wandering for the Israelites. And Jesus, in that wilderness wandering, faces three temptations. Temptation to turn stone into bread, the temptation to test the Lord to see if it will come good, and the temptation to worship the devil and inherit all the nations. Jesus quotes three Bible passages to come through the trial. All three are from Deuteronomy. My point is Jesus drew great strength from this book. So it's, if it's good enough for Jesus, right, it's good enough for you and for me. Jesus loved this book. And I reckon, if read correctly, this is a book that we can draw great strength from as well. If you're a believer in Jesus, you'll find, in, I think, incredible encouragement here. 
If you're not a believer in Jesus, I think you'll find in this book the origins of much of our Western law and the ethical program that kind of shapes much of our lives, more so than any other book, especially as we read it through the prism of the Lord Jesus Christ. More about that later. But I don't, I don't also want to deny that it's an awkward book. It's an awkward book. All the Old Testament laws can freak people out, can freak us all out. And if you've started reading Deuteronomy in advance of us starting this series, right, you might already be thinking, man, do I really have to come to church for the next two and a half months to listen to Deuteronomy? Whew. No one, I think, has put the problem of the Old Testament law better than Jed Bartlett. Um, I'm about to show a snippet of uh, the West Wing. Who's a wing nut? Who loves, yeah, there we go. Few people, right? Some people claim that West Wing is the best TV ever produced. Yeah, there we go. Um, I, I didn't know that I was married for about a year when my wife got sucked into that. No, not exactly, but um, people love it. In this particular scene, right, of West Wing, US, the US president uh, confronts a right-wing fundamentalist Christian radio talk host and presses home the problem of the Old Testament laws. Deuteronomy isn't specifically cited in the little clip we're going to look at in a minute. Um, Exodus and Leviticus are, but all the laws that we're about to hear are repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so here we go. Take a look. There you go. You know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. <clears throat> It's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact, the awesome impact. I'm sorry, uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can, how it can Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs. Are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD? Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show, people call in for advice, and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show, and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. 
If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. There you go. That's what my 10-year-old daughter calls being owned. There you go. You feel the power of it, right? Do you feel the power? It's brilliant writing. Not all the quotations are correct, but if, if you leave that aside, it's powerful. And we have to confront this, and we will be confronting these things, because there is a very basic mistake that President Bartlett makes in terms of his understanding and expectations of the Old Testament, and we're going to talk a lot about this in this coming series. But I do, I do want us to feel the force of the question and the, and the reality of what it is. Um, today, I just have two simple points, and I promise you it's not one of those messages where I have you know, two points, but every point's got a, like six sub-points that go underneath it. Um, just two points, and, and the first is this. Very crucial, very simple to reading the Old Testament, actually, is this. Um, grace is the premise of the law. I might have said this before, but grace is the premise of the law. It's one of the great myths of Bible reading and Bible readers today that, that, who claim that the, Old Testament, that the Old Testament is all about doing good in order to get to heaven, and the New Testament, thank goodness, is all about trusting in God's grace so you can get to heaven. So it's all about works in the Old Testament and grace and gift in the New Testament. In fact, just this week, right, a long-term Christian asked me whether that's actually the right way to read the Bible. This person was in their 80s. You know, dark and hard and awful in the Old Testament and happy and joyful and light and bright and grace-filled in the New. But friends, it's absolutely crucial to realize that even the Old Testament says that grace, God's favor, mercy, and love towards you is the premise for obeying the laws of God. You see this explicitly, open up Deuteronomy, explicitly in the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Uh, come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, the opening words of God in this book, uh, the opening words of these first laws. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Did you notice, right? The first line of the Ten Commandments is about what God has done for you. It's like when we baptised Eloise recently, where we were reminded that baptism isn't something we're doing for God, but it's something we do in response to what God has done for us. And the Ten Commandments begin the same way. These aren't ten things God gives us and says, "Radio, here you go, obey these, and then I'll think about rescuing you. No, it's the other way around, and it's always been. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. I freed you, now obey. God's mercy and his grace always precedes 
And it's the premise of the Old Testament law. Before we hear anything about how we are to obey God, we hear about how he has saved us. Same point is actually made more subtly throughout the whole structure of Deuteronomy as a whole book. The central section of Deuteronomy, chapters 5 through 26, where we see the repetition of the law, its regulations and its stipulations and its application, the first four chapters before we get to that recapitulation of the law is a potted history of God's faithfulness to his people Israel for the past 40 years. That's what chapters one through four are there for. The book doesn't open with, you know, you'd better be good, don't stuff up like your parents did, you know. The book opens with, look how gracious and kind and merciful and wonderful God has been to you. Now let me look, tell you what it's going to look like to live in response to him. And we see this wonderfully in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. I told you we're going to be all flipping. Chapter 2, verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7 to 8. Chapter 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going through the, work, the great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Flick with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Moses still building up to the recapitulation of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 4, verse 34. Or has... Verse 34, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him out of heaven. He let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it, in, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. My point is this. Deuteronomy is structured that so you hear, we hear four chapters of you are loved. You are precious. I have saved you. Now obey. Not the other way around. And this is so important to get. So important to get. And what's more, right, a huge portion of the Old Testament laws are actually about the sacrificial system, about the sacrifice of an animal as a symbol of judgment, the judgment of God falling uh, for sin on the animal passing over the human being in the ancient Israelite context. And these sacrificial laws are not there as like a, an add-on or an addendum, right? Like, you know, you've got to work really hard to obey these laws. And if you happen to stuff up at the end, well, we've got these laws and stipulations about how you can sort out your sin. No, 
These laws are built into the very fabric of the moral laws, almost as if to say that the Lord knows that you're not going to be able to pull this thing off and obey all these laws. But he wants you to constantly remember that he is willing to forgive. Deuteronomy 16 has this stunningly long section on the Passover sacrifice, how the lamb without blemish is sacrificed and the angel of the Lord passes over Israel so they might go free. This is so fundamental and critical to realise. The Old Testament law doesn't say obey so you get God's grace. It says grace is the premise of the law. Structurally, it's the same in the New Testament, right? Here's a wonderful statement. Flick with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. If you're struggling to find out where all these things are in the Bible, I've been having struggle. I've been struggling to find stuff in the Bible lately. You know, when people get up to read the Bible, I'm like getting there just as the reading's finished. Um, so if that's you, that's cool. 1 John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. You know, we strive to obey, strive to live lives worthy of our calling, but we know that Jesus has atoned for our sins on the cross. It's the same structure as the Old Testament gives us. Grace comes before the law. Now, I don't know about you, right, but there are, there are a variety of reasons to obey civil laws in our world, right? Um, you know, what are the motivations uh, that are given in public law um, as to why you should do stuff, right? I think the great motivation for why we shouldn't do particular things is fear of punishment, yeah? That's a motivation for doing the right thing. You'll be punished if you do the wrong thing, if you're busted, right? Shoplifters will be prosecuted. Like, you'll be punished if you're busted. I, I have fears of those signs when I was a teenager, when I was contemplating what I might do, but that's a story for another day. Um, hope of reward is another motivating factor, right? So often you get this money for information. Uh, avoiding harm is another motivator. Uh, drink driving ads on TV or on billboards or COVID-19 restrictions do this to avoid harming other people. What about we just need to get along with each other? So like no smoking or smoking ads and things like that. And the Bible actually happily employs all of these motivations for obedience, including fear of punishment. We use it all the time in natural law. Um, shoplifters will be prosecuted. You'll find all of these in Deuteronomy. But my big point is that the main motivator for obedience is God's grace and mercy and kindness towards you. He's rescued you out of Egypt, he says to the Israelites. Now obey. And we never hear that in civil law, do we? When have you ever heard grace as a reason to be a good citizen? You don't hear, like in public you know, documents, pay your taxes because it's such a privilege to be an Australian. You ever hear that? You don't get drive safely because isn't it a thrill to be living? I did a little bit of digging, right? I looked up the Australian Constitution to see you know, what's the premise of our laws. And in the opening line, you come across grace, actually. It's, it reads, quote, humbly relying, I should say it in a sort of constitutional voice, shouldn't I? Humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, we have agreed to unite. Ra, ra, ra. 
Grace is the foundation of the Australian Constitution. I kind of like that, but it's hardly the foundation of our public laws, right? My main point is that grace is the foundation that drives, motivates, and empowers obedience in the Old Testament, and it's the same that empowers obedience in the New. It simply isn't Old Testament all about law, doing good to get God's blessing in the New Testament changes that. The key motivation for obeying God's law is that you know his goodness towards you. I hope you know his goodness towards you. Because obedience to God really doesn't make sense apart from that. This is going to be really clear in my second point. Grace is the premise of the law. Point two, Christ is the promise of the law. Christ is the promise of the law. Now I know most of us Christians, right, we're really familiar with the idea that Jesus is the fulfilment of the law. You know, so Matthew 5, 7, Jesus himself says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, that is the law of Moses and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, In Romans chapter 10, the second reading we just had before from Liz, uh, Paul says, Christ is the culmination of the law. So there might be righteousness for everyone who believes in him. Jesus fully obeyed the law in a way that none of us could. He offered his life on the cross as a perfect atonement in a way that none of us could atone for our own sins. And therefore, everyone who believes in Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's the culmination. He's the fulfillment of the law for all those who trust in him. Now, the thing I want to say is that this was not a Christian invention after the fact. Sort of if Christians, you know, sat around after Jesus ascended to heaven and thought, oh, how can we get rid of the Old Testament? How can we get rid of the Old Testament law? I know, we can make up this idea that Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, now we don't have to obey it. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? The, the, The issue is that's not the case. The Old Testament said that one day the law would be redundant. So Jeremiah the prophet said, a day would come when a new covenant would replace the old covenant. Come with me back into your Old Testament to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Yeah, there we go. Jeremiah 31, where we come across this idea that a new covenant will come to replace the old. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In other words, Jeremiah in the Old Testament says there is a day coming when the covenant in Deuteronomy won't be the covenant that God's people live by. The Old Testament has this kind of built-in redundancy, right? Deuteronomy itself has a built-in redundancy. Here's something interesting. I hope it becomes interesting to you. I don't know if you've spotted this before. It's quite an important thing in Jewish belief. There are two statements in the book of Deuteronomy that set up an expectation that a new law was coming and that a new Moses was coming, okay? So come back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. That's where we're going to be hanging for a little while. Deuteronomy 18, verse 5. Sorry, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is Moses, right, at the end of his life, saying, I'm going, I'm going to die, but there will be a new prophet just like me who will bring a new law, listen to him. But now come with me right to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 34, and have a look at the final lines of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34. And verse 10. This is like the the editor of the book, the publisher, if you want to say that, because Moses has died. Saying in verse 10, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Deuteronomy 18 says, A prophet like me will come. End of Deuteronomy, prophet doesn't come yet. This sets up what brilliant Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman describes as a simple syllogism that influenced Jewish interpreters. I dare you, after church, to say simple syllogism five times really quickly. I was walking with the kids the other day after school and I said, I've come across this idea of a simple syllogism. Can you say it five times really quickly? They failed. Ask them after church. It was great. I couldn't do it. Anyway, there you go. But anyway, trimp along with this simple syllogism. Here's the, here's the syllogism, right? God will raise up a prophet like Moses. There has not been a prophet like Moses yet. Therefore, we keep looking for such a prophet. That's a syllogism. Jewish interpreters after the time of Moses use this, right? God will raise up a prophet like Moses. Haven't got a prophet like Moses yet? Keep looking for such a prophet. And get this. According to the New Testament, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Jesus is the one whom Moses spoke of. Now, there are heaps of ways we could do this, right? We could have six months of sermons on Jesus is the new Moses. Maybe that'll come after our Deuteronomy one because you go, I love Deuteronomy. Can we just see how Jesus is the new? It's so good. I mean, this this stuff just keeps me up at night and you're going to go, what a wacko pastor we have. But anyway, think with me, right? What is Jesus' most famous teaching? Go. Sermon on the Mount, yes. You get the door prize. Lachlan, there you go. Where did, that, where did the first law come from? Where did Moses receive the first law? On a mount, Mount Sinai. Here we have Jesus on a mount, right? Chapter five describes the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his new law. And in the introduction, like the, Matthew kind of crams in five Greek verbs to just kind of basically say, Listen to this, it sounds a whole lot like Horeb, right? It's incredible, right? It's like, it's like, the, um, it's like Matthew kind of hits poor, like slow motion in this verse, right? It's like, he sits down. The disciples came to him on a mountain. He opened his mouth and started saying to them, and then begins a Sermon on the Mount. And we're meant to know what's going on here, right? The new lawgiver has come. Or we could go to John chapter 5 and 6. This is a wonderful section where Jesus says, Moses spoke of me. And everyone's going, what's this guy on? Like, you know, Moses spoke of you. And then chapter 6 of John, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, right? 
Moses has fed thousands of Israelites. And then the people, after the feeding of 5,000, say, could this be the prophet like Moses? John 6, 14. And the readers of Matthew's gospel are supposed to go, yep. But there's one passage, right, where it is crystal clear. It's where the apostle Peter is preaching after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's just healed a person in the temple courts in Jerusalem and then says this. Have a look, Acts chapter three. Acts chapter three, into the New Testament. Acts chapter three, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, and then he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoration, the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, direct quote from from Deuteronomy, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Jesus is the new Moses, the new lawgiver, the foundation of the new covenant. Jesus is not just the premise of the law, Jesus is the promise of the law. And this is where the West Wing, with all of its brilliance, went horribly wrong. President Bartlett and the scriptwriters behind him didn't realize the most basic idea of the Old and New Testament, that Jesus has fulfilled the law and that he is the new Moses and we're called to listen to and obey him. And as a result of his life, teaching, death, resurrection, we are to read the, New, the Old Testament in an entirely different way. I can't remember if I've shared this illustration before. Um, I've learned this from someone else. But I think it's really helpful in a way of helping us read the Bible better, especially the Old Testament. Um, here's a picture. Anyone know what that is? Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. There you go. You can tell who the older people are. Um, <laughs> Oh, sorry, educated, educated, cultured people of the group are. This, this is a prism, right? This is a prism. Um, when, when light goes through a prism, right, the light, like cool things happen, like light refracts, yeah? It's just what happens. And the light then is broken up sort of into the spectrum of light. That is about as far as I'm going, right, when it comes to physics. That's where I draw the line because... I just don't want to get my, I didn't do very well in physics at school. Anyway, if you think about the the Old and New Testament a bit like this image, right? The Old Testament has loads and loads and loads of things to say, but once it goes through the prism of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his return, stunning things happen. Some of the Old Testament laws don't change very much, right? Like laws about caring for the poor. They don't change when you come to the New Testament. Same. Some things are intensified, right? When you put the Old Testament laws through the prism of the cross. So what the Old Testament says, love your neighbour. After Jesus, what does it say? More than that. It says love your enemies. 
Love your neighbour. Intensified, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Intensifies. Here's, here's the important thing, right? Some laws, though, from the Old Testament are refracted beyond kind of recognition, like circumcision, food laws, death penalty. And ultimately, the whole sacrificial system has been absorbed into Jesus so that we never have to make sacrifices like that again. The one true sacrifice for sin has been done forever. And so when, in a moment, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus. We're remembering his once-for-all sacrifice for our sin and whoever throws themselves onto his death and for them is forgiven. This is no conjurer's trick, right, of trying to weasel our way out of obeying the Old Testament laws. This is where Jed Bartlett went horribly wrong. This is exactly how Jesus taught us to read the Old Testament. So when the new Moses and the new law is given on the new mountain, we cannot read Deuteronomy the same again. We read it through the prism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is to say that it's not like we don't get anything out of the book of Deuteronomy, right? Far from it. It just means we get things out of the book of Deuteronomy that the author of Deuteronomy wanted us to get out of it in light of the cross. And what Deuteronomy wants us to get out of it, knowing full well it's kind of redundancy in the major plan of God's salvation history, the two key points that we need to get out of it is this. Grace is the premise of the law and Christ is the promise of the law. And as we study it together over these coming weeks, I hope you'll see again and again and again and again and again and again and again The grace drives everything. Yes, the Lord expects us, his chosen, rescued children, to obey him, to listen to Jesus, to hang on to, to trust the promises of God. But he knows we're going to fail. And so he holds out his mercy towards us because of Jesus. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please write into our hearts those things that are, that are to our benefit and, and for our health as your people. And Father, those things that bring you glory and honour, not just today, but Father, as we step forward into studying Deuteronomy. Father, help us, Lord, as we study your word. Help us to be, avoid being unnecessarily distracted by minor points. Help us not to be overwhelmed by complexities. But Lord, we pray that you that we would help us to hear your voice, to hear Deuteronomy, to look at this beautiful light through the prism of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Father, may we be transformed and strengthened by your grace. May we cling to you, obey you, And trust your promises as we journey through this land, through this world, on our way to the promised new creation. And Father, I know that there are people in this building right now who who don't know your goodness towards them. And Father, those who aren't confident in your love, please, even now, convince them, Lord, 
by your word and through your spirit. And Father, help us all to look to Jesus, the new Moses, the new lawgiver, and Father, to listen to him as we live well for your glory in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.